This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What's up, people? Welcome back to the WOMED. Oh, my God. Jack, I think I fangirled harder than, like, you've ever fangirled for a guest. No, no way. Did you not hear me? I was, like, stumbling my words at the beginning of this episode. I could not speak. No, I thought you were, you were, you were putting together these, like, super articulate questions. And I'm over here, like, I just think you're really cool. But... (laughs) I asked him what I almost asked him what he does for his skincare like come on I was such a dork I'm such a dork well this week on the WOMED we have Dr. Blair Peters aka the queer surgeon on Instagram whom Jack and I have wanted to get them on the podcast forever and still very thankful that he didn't delete my message and decided to come on but Dr. Peters has been awarded fellowships, multiple fellowships to pursue further training in advanced peripheral nerve surgery and gender affirming surgery. He was the first advanced gender surgery fellow at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. On top of that, they teach and they're like the, they're assistant professors in urology and plastic and reconstructive surgery. Like, I know. Dr. Peters does so much for the LGBT community, advocacy work and advocacy on social media. So I was so, I'm so excited that we got to sit down and have this conversation. I'm like still Twitterpated. I'm still so excited. (laughs) I know. I know everyone is going to love this one. You know, we all, I think are trying to do better, even if we do not identify within the LGBT community, how we can further the conversation and uplift the voices in the LGBT community and what we can do also to be better allies for our patients and coworkers. So with that, let's dive right in. I'm really excited to talk to you because I have been in a primary care clinic on the South side of Chicago for the past year and will finish my education there until I graduate. And we see a lot of um, LGBT patients, a lot of trans patients, and do a lot of counseling before they head to, we're really lucky in Chicago, there's the Northwestern, um, I believe it's the Gender Pathways Program. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but Northwestern University is a really great program to provide gender-affirming surgeries. And so we counsel a lot of patients and kind of help them along that route of getting to Northwestern. And we primarily see a very marginalized group of patients. So it's actually a really great resource to send people to. So I selfishly am really excited to talk to you about kind of navigating those conversations and how uh, I, I personally can help patients and be better in that setting. But seriously, thank you so much. I'm sure you're extremely busy. So thank you for joining us on the WellMed. <laughs> yeah, no problem. I uh, appreciate the invitation. And I also had today off that I was telling Danielle earlier. So it's like a lovely day. And I honestly like just having these types of conversations. It's like with everything going on in 
healthcare, <laughs> like working at a hospital right now, I find these types of things like fill my cup up more than empty from it. So. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, good, 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 good. <laughs> I mean, like I, I've been following you for a while now and just, I just, I love like the force that you are on social media because, and, and I, I worried, I was like, man, like they're, they're constantly talking on Instagram and Twitter and everything. Like, is this going to be depleting? So I'm really grateful that you're willing to come on the woman today. I also yeah, told, sure. told my coworkers today that we were interviewing you and they totally freaked out. Like my coworkers <laughs> were, they're like, wait, what? They're like, ask this. You're ask totally this. famous. I, I know about that. It's funny you say that though. Cause I, um, I went to like a small meeting this past weekend and that's the first in-person meeting I've attended in two years, which a lot has changed in my life for sure in the last two years. And especially with sort of like, I guess, having any element of visibility. So it's a little bit shocking to sort of, I went to like a plastic surgery kind of nerve and microsurgery meeting and yeah, it was super humbling, but cool to see just like how many people came up to say hi and introduce themselves and like meeting all these people that follow you in real life outside of your own circle was super cool just to kind of see like the power of social media and the impact that you can actually have within the medical community and culture. I think you forget that, you know, you see all these people with like millions of followers and I probably have 15, 16,000 or something like that. But almost every single one of those people is a community member or someone in medicine. And the actual implications of that are pretty far reaching. So it was really cool for me to just see that firsthand, I think, for the first time. That's so interesting, especially, you know, I know that you have been involved in academia and putting out papers and trying to influence policy. And some as frustrating as I can feel, sometimes it, it makes you wonder how much time, you know, if you're actually spending it on social media, I feel like there's so much of an influence there that tends to get overlooked. Not to say that putting out papers and putting out policy absolutely is so important to kind of keep the progress moving forward, but also, social media is one of the best outlets and ways to kind of reach people where they are. Yeah, no, I, I literally couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I do all those things like I'm on task force committees and, you know, do like real legitimate research and publish in academic journals. But part of my frustration with that, especially with like the transgender and gender diverse community is you know, you go through and you do all this research, which is important to sort of push the field forward. But we've created this system in academia where that information is like behind paid firewalls. So the vast majority of people that actually need the information and the information that actually like affects them, they can't actually access it. So that was sort of my first goal with like at Queer Surgeon was just putting out like real information that was accessible to people just because there was so much misinformation like within the community, especially around gender affirming surgery, which is something that, you know, has always sort of had this aura around it and is like still continues to be politicized. And at the end of the day, like this is medically necessary care and like people just need to know this information. And then that's kind of sort of spawned so many other things, but especially with like social media, I think, there's this culture in academia that I think infiltrates so many different things that we do, but I certainly like felt a lot of sort of insecurity and vulnerability starting to be outspoken on social media because when you go through academics, like that's a big no-no and a lot of these institutions, if anything, try to kind of silence you or certainly kind of 
are kind of on top of what you're saying. And there's very much this feeling that you're going out on a limb. Um, and it doesn't need to be that way, but I've certainly like went up against that myself for the last couple of years and have a lot of conversations with people, I think in academics that want to say more, but feel that they can't. Do you feel like your institution has really supported you or have they tried to kind of like, oh no, there goes Dr. Peters again. Like. <laughs> Yeah, so I do, which I'm very, you know, lucky to be at OHSU for that reason. That's also partially why I stayed. My sort of social media presence and a lot of the advocacy work I was doing sort of predated me starting on as an assistant professor. And I was very upfront about all of that and, you know, had it all out in the open. And I certainly wasn't going to stay anywhere that was going to prevent me from saying what needed to be said. And it's like, if you have an institution that's like telling you to not advocate for LGBTQ plus people or like call out oppressions or systemic marginalization or like fight for what's actually right, which at the end of the day, I feel like I'm just like fighting for people and medicine's about like caring for people, mm -hmm. like, you know, infinite red flags. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I felt like uplifted and supported and, you know, continue to. And if anything, OHSU is, you know, having these social media takeovers. And I feel like they kind of amplify my voice more than anything, but that is That's unfortunately amazing. not common. Yeah. 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 I have a lot of friends that, I mean, just regardless of your social media platforms that are really trying to be silenced or really like face, facing like a lot of abuse from their fellows attendings, you know, and they're just, I don't know, the, the social media realm is kind of hard to navigate. I feel like as a, as a physician and resident and super difficult and it all gets linked back to this like concept of professionalism which is I talk a lot about that often when I'm asked to speak it'll be kind of about two different things either like a hardcore surgical audience that wants me to speak about like techniques and gender affirming surgery but just as commonly or not more commonly I get asked to speak about kind of queer representation allyship in medicine and a lot of sort of the culture of academia and medicine that kind of works against that and so many of what I sort of say in those talks always comes down to this like core idea of like who and how is professionalism being defined. And even when you say something like social media, it's always like, oh, well, that's unprofessional. Like that's always this word that is sort of like weaponized against us. Mm -hmm. And when you actually start looking a layer deeper, I started saying a while ago, like professionalism is a Trojan horse, meaning it's often this vehicle used to deliver something that's misogynistic or sexist or racist or homophobic or any number of one of those things. And once I started sort of seeing that for what it was, I think I realized how many times I was like silenced or assimilated to this like concept of what professionalism was so that I could survive or get to the next step in my career, especially in training. So I think that's something that you know, not just medicine, but especially medicine, we really need to undergo this whole transformative process of how are I finding professionalism? And so much of that comes down to who's in power. And the reality is that in most institutions, the people in power are white, cisgender, heterosexual, often very conservative men. And it's like, very that's stodgy. Just, yeah, that's the standard by which we are all kind of compared. And it's like, you have to fit into the narrow view of like, what is professional. And if you're outside of that, then, you know, you're the problem, which you're not, you're just like a real person. And I've sort of started defining professionalism myself as like taking pride in what you do and showing up to work authentically and caring for the people in front of you. Like nothing's more professional than that. So that's my spiel on that. 
I'm sure that it wasn't always that easy for you. Like during medical training, it's a very, especially in surgery, you're talking about, you know, these different walls that you need to confine yourself in. And surgery is definitely a specialty that it makes it exceptionally difficult. So what do you remember a specific moment or a, a time, or maybe it wasn't until you finished residency or whatever it is that you kind of felt like, you know what, I'm, I'm just starting to be me and that's what's going to be professional. Yeah, super insightful question. And I feel like I have that conversation a lot with especially queer medical students that, you know, are really early on and sort of, you know, realizing like the powers and oppressions that exist in the medical training system. And I think I sometimes am put on this pedestal where like, oh, well, look at this person who's out there like calling out these things and doing these things. But it's not like I started that way. Like, I still feel like I continue to to push myself. And as sort of, I think the months and the years go by, it gets easier and easier to speak truth to power when your own power grows but Mm -hmm. especially as somebody in medical school or whatever it was like there were so many times that I was silent when I wish I had spoken up or I assimilated to the degree that I thought I had to to sort of get by or times that I felt like I toned it down when I really wanted to tone it up and those are really complicated things to navigate especially as someone that at the end of the day, as like a proud queer person to feel like there were often moments where I was kind of closeting myself. It's a really hard thing to deal with emotionally. So I think a lot of what I do is hold and share space with people in those scenarios, because you're not always safe to speak truth to power or to sort of go out on a limb. And at the end of the day, like if you're in healthcare, you do have to worry about self-preservation because the system's not going to look after you. And that's kind of where we're at right now. So That was a really long answer to your question, but many, many, many examples of going through my training where I felt like and wish that I had said more. And I think I've sort of come into my own and continue to do so, but I'm still growing in that way too. I just, I wonder how long it will be before like that kind of system changes. Like I can only imagine like seeing these future LGBT docs and, and stuff that are coming up and just seeing you as someone that's like, you're part of our community. Like we can do this and we can start speaking out more. We can live truthfully and still be seen as like a respected, you know, member of academia and like the medical community. something that sticks out with a previous conversation that Danielle and I had with Dr. Marcus Telez. He's a primary care physician. We're kind of just like Instagram friends, but I always say like he has his own particular brand of chaos. Like I'm just so obsessed with it. He's just like total chaos. Just I love, love him. It. Yeah. <laughs> He's the, he, I told, I like told him like, we're going to be best friends. You have no choice, but he said something really, that really stuck out to me in our conversation about that he thinks at that point will be one day when it's not a specialty, when LGBT care is not a specialty, it's just part of care. And it makes me wonder about gender affirming surgery as well. It's like, at what point are we keeping this a specialty? And are we just saying like, this is care for everyone. We have a certain amount of, you know, we can't ever assume that any of our patients do or do not identify within the LGBT community. So when do we, like, when does it not become a specialty anymore? And it's just part of medicine. Yeah, I wrote a piece in Med Pages today, I think last summer, that I think kind of mostly speaks to answering that question. I think there's sort of two parts to that. So 
gender affirming surgery specifically it's a that's a broad spectrum of like procedures and some are less complicated and some are more complicated when we're starting to talk about genital surgeries like vaginal plasty and phalloplasty that is a specialty and i say that in the way that i don't think those surgeries historically and sometimes presently have gotten enough respect for how complicated they are and how much sort of specialized training and experience needs to go into doing those things well which is why we are coming out with programs like actual fellowship training programs to improve our outcomes because traditionally, you know, gender affirming surgery existed only outside of academic medicine. So if you were doing these procedures, it wasn't usually at a university, it was in like a private clinic with a, you know, fairly minimal amount of resources. And the only way to learn was to go somewhere like Thailand or Europe, and basically observe and then kind of just start doing these things, which there's a big learning curve. And, you know, you certainly... If I was a patient, I would definitely want to be somewhere where someone had like really guided stepwise autonomy and tutelage in these procedures, but that hasn't existed until quite recently. So I do a lot of, I think, advocacy on one arm saying like these procedures need to be like properly trained and we need to have a standard to protect Mm -hmm. patients and make sure that they are getting good outcomes and they're not being harmed. That's one side of it. But then there's always been this idea of like, like you said, like LGBTQ plus medicine or gender affirming care is like somehow this niche thing that doesn't touch all aspects of medicine. And I think the easiest way to think about it is five to 10% of people identify as LGBTQ plus. If we look at like, you know, young generations, like people mm-hmm. that are in junior high, high school right now, it's like even higher than that. It's, it's, it's like, it's, I think it's um, at least 15 to 20. I think I remember seeing. Yeah. So it's, it's a huge number of people. So it doesn't matter what you do in medicine. Like you, by definition are seeing LGBTQ plus people. And no matter what you do, like people deserve affirming care. So a lot of the like general principles of how to interact with people and just like understanding the needs of like a gender diverse community or a sexual minority that is not like, that is always, it always has been, but even more so now than Mm -hmm. ever, it is part of your job as a healthcare worker. Mm -hmm. So that is something that like needs to be present and prevalent from day one in medical education. And I think we're getting somewhere with that and year by year, like it is getting better, but there's been this narrative that like gender affirming care and surgery is new and it's like this new field. And I push back against that because the reality is that the community has always existed. These healthcare needs have always existed we as a medical field are just finally starting to peel back the layers of oppression that of what's held them from accessing this care for so long. So like, it is not new. We are just like finally at the beginning stages of like dismantling that structure that um, has kept things that way for so long. Do you know when like the first sort of gender affirming uh, surgery was performed and like, like where? Yeah, there's sort of a long history. I think the most famous case have you ever seen that movie? I think it's called A Danish Girl. Mm, yes. Yeah. Was, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because that was only made like, I think within the last decade, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, even just in terms of how just like asleep we all were for so long, I think socially and culturally about these things, like, you know, Eddie Redmayne won an, I think an Oscar for that mm-hmm. performance. And, you know, it's only in the last few years that I think as a whole, people are like, wow, it's really messed up that we're like, taking straight cisgender actors and like 
you know, letting them play trans roles when trans people can't get any work in Hollywood. Right. Like that's just like a new thing. So the long story of that is um, that was one of the first gender affirming procedures that were performed. She ended up dying of complications of it. But these things have been happening like for many, 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 many decades. And obviously outcomes have like greatly and vastly improved. The first ever like gender affirming clinic in North America was at Johns Hopkins. But that was fairly short-lived and ended up getting shut down because there was a psychiatrist there who basically took the stance that um, don't treat the body, treat the mind. So basically getting into what you all know is conversion therapy and those things. (laughs) Um, Oh boy. Yeah. So gender-affirming surgery in America was behind for a really, really long time because that was the dominant school of thought. And it's only really in the last maybe decade or so that these procedures are starting to happen in like a university setting and really in the last few years that there's like a very prominent sort of presence in our academic societies like we've for sure reached that tipping point Um, but the history is pretty dark and very marred and I think whenever I reach out to or talk to people at institutions that are working on building a gender-affirming surgery program the first thing I say is like You need to be cautious, you need to protect patients and go slow because there's so many reasons to have historical mistrust and so many patients and especially community members have been so traumatized by Western medicine. So you really need to like make the effort to build bridges and like really develop a relationship with the community to actually earn their trust because right now like we do not deserve their trust in many areas. Yeah, it reminds me of, um, of course, I read the article that you were speaking about that you wrote a year ago, because I love to stalk our guests before we talk to them on, on air. But I love something you said in one of the articles. It was, the truth is that people who need gender affirming healthcare services are the most unable to access them. And this kind of like opens up this conversation of the different types of systems and societal barriers that patients face in receiving gender affirming care. Can you speak a little bit more on some of those, on the barriers that you see most prevalent? Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's like... There's so many. Where do you start? Really? Yeah, you could write a book, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, but I think what I was getting at with that statement is, you know, a lot of marginalized identities overlap and, you know, we can't ever overlook like the role of intersectionality in a lot of these things. And yes, someone can be a gender minority, but many times they're also a sexual minority and many times they may be a racial minority Um, And all of those things can compound to really sort of create this extreme level of like being systematically marginalized. I'm super lucky and fortunate to be at what I think is sort of the gold standard program of a multidisciplinary structure at OHSU, where, you know, I have this huge robust team, not just of surgical colleagues, but like mental health and support workers and outreach workers and peer support and social workers, and really a group of people that allow me to operate on people that I otherwise wouldn't be able to if it was just me in a surgical office Mm -hmm. because some people really do need like huge levels of support to be able to safely access and recover from a lot of this treatment but I also realize like I'm in such a privileged position because I probably have some of the most robust supports around me to be able to do these things and even still I see patients that I still can't do what they need me to do um So it's never lost on me that, you know, there's so much someone has to go through to even make it into my office. And like, yes, my wait list is three years long or something crazy like that. But like, 
there's for every one person that I'm seeing, there's probably 10 that are never making it in the door. So some of that is the fact that there's a limited amount of us that are like fully trained in some of these procedures and we're trying to play catch up on that. But, you know, we have the issues of like even having insurance in the first place, being in a position where you are geographically close to someone, able to travel, have people that'll look after you, can financially support yourself for huge periods of downtime, like et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not like one simple answer, um, but we have a long way to go in terms of addressing all those disparities. Yeah, you mentioned um, like health insurance and stuff like that. I can imagine with our U.S. healthcare insurance systems that these types of surgeries are not covered. Like, I feel like it'd be hard to, you know, navigate the network and, you know, make them like for insurance purposes, medically necessary procedures, which they are, but there's still that, that disconnect, that level. Yeah, there's, I mean, insurance is still, it's gotten a lot better. Like there is a ton of work that has been happening in the advocacy space to push for that. And there were some pretty major um, changes in 2014 that basically sort of resulted in the feasibility of doing a lot of these things in an academic setting because insurance companies were no longer able to basically just, you know, deny gender affirming surgery. So overarchingly coverage for genital surgery and chest surgery is pretty reliable these days. Facial surgery is still quite uncommon, but slowly increasing. And then we have some, you know, less common requests like gender affirming body contouring and things that would like very, very rarely if ever be covered under insurance. But that's definitely slowly improving and changing. But that brings up the, you know, the whole concept too of some people don't even have insurance period. But I did my residency training in Canada. And I think there's this sort of, I think a lot of people that live in the States, like look at Canada, like it's some utopia where all of these like, problems <laughs> don't exist. Not true. Um, there's a lot of great You're things. You're breaking about, the fourth wall. I know, I know. I know. Sorry to sort of be the bearer of sobering bad news, but Canada's great. And there's a lot of really awesome things about the healthcare system. But I look at like my practice and the type of resources I have, which I truly feel are needed to like really have successful outcomes with some of these procedures. And I could not replicate what I do in Canada in a Mm. public healthcare setting in a place that has just minimal resources. So, you know, it's different though, like in Canada, insurance isn't a thing and everyone has access to whatever healthcare they need. But there's like one gender affirming surgery clinic in the country right now for a whole variety of reasons. So that doesn't necessarily fix everything either um, because the government needs to also understand how important these procedures are and be willing to back it up with the appropriate funds and resources, which has yet to happen in most provinces throughout the country. So it's complicated. So when patients come in to see you, by the time they see you, are they they've decided what they want, when they want it, or how much counseling do you do in these situations with patients? Yeah. So, I mean, it's always variable, I guess. Like, I think when we talk about even like standards of care, what I always tell people is like, one set of rules is never going to work for every person from like the transgender diverse community. And at the end of the day, like you just have to treat the person in front of you I do a lot of counseling though. So typically, um, and 
by that, I mean like surgical counseling. So typically when someone is in my office, it's like they already have went through the process of like having a letter of support and all those things. So I'm really seeing them from like, a, I know you need surgery. Let's talk about where your dysphoria is specifically coming from. What's an acceptable surgical risk for you? Like, what are your priorities in terms of like aesthetics, sexual functioning, all these other things, and basically trying to find what's like the safest procedure for them to give them the most benefit and relief while sort of just minimizing risk. And sometimes that's a pretty quick and easy conversation, depending on what someone's looking for or the amount of like knowledge and information they're coming in with. Sometimes it's like multiple repeat appointments to sort of counsel further, answer questions. And I kind of say like folks to my patients when I speak on these topics that at the end of the day, what is successful is when a patient's goals and priorities and expectations meet what I can actually offer surgically. And people don't always come in that way. And you really have to go through the work to sort of find that common ground or else you're not going to have a happy patient or be a happy person. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just kind of like reading through your bio and, you know, Jack and I, we like to like to creep on our guests and kind of like learn everything we can about them you like straddle both worlds so you have like you're you're an assistant professor but then you're also a surgeon and you're doing so much more research than on top of like all these different and just like in general advocacy work as well I mean (laughs) how do you do it all (laughs) yeah for everything (laughs) I think I sort of like actually posted almost yesterday on my Instagram, kind of speaking to that a little bit. Like, I think a lot of us have this idea that you have to choose, like you either have to be like a social media justice warrior, or you have to be like a traditional, like, you know, researcher that chases grants, or you have to be like, you know, any number one of those things that you can't kind of have these diverging interests. For me, at the end of the day, it's like my core concepts and values are the same. And it's like, I'm here to provide queer representation and academics and shift the culture of medicine and improve care for LGBTQ plus people and especially the transgender and gender diverse community. So if I'm doing research, it's because I have a clinical innovation that is like improving patient outcomes and I need to tell other surgeons about it. And the way that you do that is through peer reviewed publications. Mm -hmm. That is why I do research. If I'm like speaking and lecturing, it's either to sort of disseminate those techniques or it's to sort of shift culture, educate people and try to make other institutions a safer space. If I'm like advocating on social media, it's usually any sort of number one of those things. And I think when you like truly are driven by your passions and you have a mission statement and you just fall back on that, um, then you can sort of transcend any one sort of realm or terrain. And, you know, it's been interesting for me because as a plastic surgeon, it's sort of considered an honor in academia to be like invited as a guest speaker or a visiting professor. And, you know, that would always be within your own specialty. Like, you know, for me, it would be getting invited to speak at another plastic surgery department, which happens, but I've been getting invitations from obstetrics and gynecology groups and departments of psychiatry and medical schools. And to me, it's like so affirming and showing that like, yes, what I'm doing in gender affirming surgery is important, Um, But I think the greater work with broader implications is sort of speaking 
about representation and allyship and really trying to change how we look at how we're sort of, you know, um, administering medicine to other people. And so I think I do it all because it all kind of, all of it is me in some ways. And like, it all Mm -hmm. sort of intersects and overlaps and interrelates and, um, speaking about one thing sort of informs something else that I'm doing. And at the end of the day, it's just all part of the overarching mission. Wow. That was beautiful. Yeah. And your research is just fascinating too. And I, it just, for me, and I, I, I saw you focus on cut all like the ability to do these like nerve surgeries. Like I'm like, I'm like thinking in my head and I'm just like, like clitoral anatomy even has been like, like only just starting to be like more fully studied and just thinking about all the different aspects that go into like a gender affirming surgery so that they have a quality of life, a quality of like sexual life and function and all of that focuses in on quality of life like every my mind is just well Danielle I was gonna say too you're like Danielle's plastics brain now that you're in like this world of plastics I feel like Mm -hmm. you are just like dying to ask all of these like really intricate questions about (laughs) not everyone's probably gonna get no please do because you have a background that can ask those questions so Danielle you go for it (laughs) well so in my head I'm thinking like even like labioplasties are considered uh, plastic surgeries. And I'm just, I'm like, so much is not understood by a lot of plastic surgeons. And I, I shudder, A, to think about all of the labioplasties that are, that are happening um, without regards to female anatomy and nerve function. But we do do a fair bit of um, body contouring and stuff. There's a lot you can do with, with lipo and with like fat transfer. Uh, we really don't do anything as far as implants. We don't do like gluteal implants or pectoral implants, anything like that. But as far as I'm curious, um, I know you talk a lot about genital gender affirming surgeries. Do you also focus on um, like chest lifts and um, breast dogs and, you know, like maintaining like nerve function and stuff in those areas as well? Yeah. So my practice is, I would describe it as full breath gender affirming surgery, but my major focus is genital surgery. Part of that being there's just a greater need when you're someone that can safely offer those procedures. Whereas chest surgery is much more in the skill set of, you know, more general plastic surgeons, but I still do a ton of, you know, breast augmentation and a ton of gender affirming mastectomy. There's just like such a huge need for top surgery right now. Um, like we're still nowhere even near having enough surgeons that are doing that procedure. And I do a little bit of facial feminization, but it's kind of, it's my, like, as far as things I'm particularly passionate about, it's Mm -hmm. probably the thing I like enjoy the least just for full disclosure. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I do sort of maintain a small part of my practice for like really complicated nerve injuries. um, Cause I also find that keeping my pulse on like the, sort of like the innovation in nerve surgery keeps me bringing innovative nerve strategies into gender surgery, which is, I think, mm-hmm. what I truly have to offer patients in terms of better clinical outcomes. So that's kind of, I think, where I've sort of, you know, kept my priorities. But I do do some gender-affirming body contouring from time to time and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that, like you were kind of alluding to. Oh, it's just so cool. There's just so much that you can do now. And you're just on like 
the forefront of leading in these research and technologies. Like I, you just spoke at the, the American, uh, what was it? The yeah, uh, American Society of Peripheral Nerve Surgery. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. that's what I was trying to say. I was trying to pull <laughs> my my dog quick enough to get it, but I know this is a podcast episode, so our viewers cannot see you right now. But <laughs> I'm like trying to do the math. I'm like, how are you so accomplished? Because <laughs> like, what's happening? You're saying I, I look young. Yeah. You look incredible. You look great. I'm like, well, thank skin you. Looks, your skin looks amazing. Like you've done a classics residency. I'm like in my head calculating how many years your training took. Like how many years, how many years did your training take? Yeah. I mean, I did kind of go through it as quickly as I could in terms of like the training I did. So I did a general science degree, which is three years, four years of medical school, five years of plastic surgery residency and two years of fellowship. So I don't know. I think it's like 13 or 14, wow. something like that. You've already done such an incredible amount and you're teaching, you're doing so many different things. Where do you kind of see your career headed? The last year, especially for me has really been, I think like exponential growth in terms of like opportunities and visibility and things, but I truly feel like I'm just getting started. I have like way more ideas than I could like possibly get on paper. Um, so I think just like continuing to chase down a lot of the concepts that I am in terms of improving erogenous and sexual health outcomes for patients and minimizing nerve problems following these procedures is going to dominate like a huge part of my clinical practice and continuing to sort of advocate and speak. And I think it's just going to be doing what I'm doing, but on an either even bigger scale as time goes on, at least I hope maybe people will get tired of me. We'll see. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, <laughs> uh, and I have to ask just because, but I feel like as um, healthcare professionals, as doctors, nurses, we get pigeonholed into only using like our scientific brain, right? And I'm just curious, you know, especially as a plastic surgeon, like you have to know the human form. Like, do you have any creative outlets? Like, do you draw, paint? did you take art classes? Like this whole like reconstruction is just so like you, you have to be both like scientific and creative. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot for me, I think what helps more than anything is I just kind of like refuse to accept dogma. And like, there's so many things that even within plastic surgery, like you're told like, oh, you can't do that or you can't do this. And if you go back and like look in the literature, like <laughs> nine out of 10 times, like there's not actually any real evidence to sort of say that. So I think I like kind of just refuse to accept that that's the way that it has to be. And a lot of that comes from the first fellowship I did in St. Louis from this total icon, legend and leader in plastic surgery. Her name's Susan McKinnon. And she's kind of like, almost responsible for making peripheral nerve surgery its own specialty. Um, and she's like the first woman to ever win sort of an innovator award from the American College of Surgeons. She does TED Talks. Like, she's just like amazing. And um, we're going to get her name again. So we can Susan McKinnon. Yeah, she's incredible. Okay. So she um, really was one of like the first female surgeons and for so long was just like held down by you know, men in surgery and told that she was like crazy and didn't know what she was talking about. And she's had answers to so many of the problems for decades. And then she just like stuck it out and like, you know, trusted her gut and like refused to sort of be told no. And then has finally been recognized as like a total innovator in the field. Um, and I spent a year with her and she really sort of like 
made me, I think, bold and brave to sort of take my own ideas and use them to help patients. And as long as you're sort of leading with good intent, um, then usually that's going to take you to a good place. So I kind of fall back on that and a lot of the mantras that she's sort of taught me over the last couple of years. Wow. Well, honestly, I am just going to wait for the day that we see your face on the cover of Time magazine or doing your own TED talk. It's coming. It's coming. (laughs) Just just remember us. Remember us. (laughs) Well, I don't know about that, but it was great talking to you both. Yeah. Thank you so much for making the time. Yeah, I've, I feel like we could gush and keep this going a whole other hour, but unfortunately people like to listen in like smaller snippets, uh, <laughs> attention spans. Yes, thank you so much. Of course, you're very welcome. All right, everyone. I hope that you loved that episode as much as Danielle and I did. We, I know, I don't know about you, Danielle, but I know I'm going to re-listen to that one a few times and send that along to my nursing students, to colleagues. I just feel like Dr. Peters is really just taking gender affirming care and gender affirming surgery and just like running with that. He is just changing, changing the game. I hope he doesn't forget us when he's super super famous because he's gonna be <laughs> we, we told him though we, I told him don't I forget know, us. I'm just saying again don't forget us <laughs> but seriously I know like it really means the world to us that um, this woman community continues to stick around and give up their time and you know listen to us and the guests and stuff that we think are super freaking awesome so every like share following the podcast every time you download an episode it helps the podcast out so much it helps us to keep doing what we love doing which is uh, bringing incredible guests and conversations to all of you so whatever platform you listen to it on like download rate it leave a review Yes. Your support means the absolute world to us. It allows us to keep bringing on guests that just like Dr. Peters, just, you know, continue to change the face of healthcare. So if you need more from Dr. Peters, which I know you do, we all do follow along at queer surgeon on Instagram. That's Q U E E R S U R G E O N queer surgeon on Instagram. And on that note till next week, WOMED 